In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we are going to be talking about ID of pine for teas, working on bushcraft knowledge and skills indoors. Is fire plow realistic in the northern temperate? Fitness for wilderness expeditions, wild teas, learning to navigate at night, and a question about paramo clothing. Welcome, welcome to episode 57 of Ask Paul Kirtley, where I answer your questions on wilderness bushcraft, survival skills, and outdoor life. And another good bunch of questions today. Keep those questions coming in. Um, I've had a few questions recently about how do I ask a question. Um, I haven't mentioned it for a while, and I know the old hands and the people that have gone right back to the early Ask Paul Kirtley certainly know how to ask a question. Now, basically, you've got a number of different ways and it makes it easy regardless of whether or not you've got some social media accounts or not. Um, basically, there are four ways. One is you just email me via my blog and there's a contact form on my blog. Click on contact, put a question in there, put Ask Paul Kirtley in the question or the title of that somewhere because then what that email does when it gets to me, um, if it's got Ask Paul Kirtley into it, it automatically goes into the Ask Paul Kirtley folder in my inbox, and then I've got all the questions there ready to go. If you don't put Ask Paul Kirtley in there, I don't know if you're happy for it to be uh, on the show. It could sit in my inbox for quite some time until I work through all my emails. So make sure you put Ask Paul Kirtley via email and it goes into that stack of questions waiting for me to answer. So that's one way. The other way that you can do it is you can send a tweet. It has to be a public tweet. Don't direct message me, public tweet. Again, with your question, clearly it has to be short if it's on Twitter and the hashtag hashtag Ask Paul Kirtley. So then I can search on the hashtag and I will find it in the public search, not a direct message. Do not direct message me with questions other than email. Um, the other way is via Instagram. And again, public post on Instagram, you're gonna to have to have some sort of image there. It can be related to your question or previous episode, somebody done a lovely uh, little sketch and coloured it in and that's that's fantastic as well not necessary um, for everyone to do that but there needs to be some sort of image again use the hashtag ask Paul Kirtley then I can search and find the questions and then I can pull the questions into my notes and then I can answer the question not a direct message and I had somebody a while ago saying that I was being arsy and a jerk because I was being specific about how I wanted the questions and asked. If you want the answer, it's got to get to me and I've got to be able to find it when I'm making these shows. You can send it by carrier pigeon to the moon for all I care, but I'm not gonna answer it if you do that. You have to send it to me in a way that makes it easy for me to answer because I've got the answers, I've got the questions there when I'm making these shows. If it's sitting somewhere that I don't know about, I'm not gonna see it. So sorry if I'm being prescriptive about how to get in touch with me, but I'm trying to make things easy and clear for people so that I will actually see the question. Okay, so you've got email, you've got public tweet with hashtag AskPaulKirtley, Instagram public post with AskPaulKirtley. And then the other way is that on my blog, under the AskPaulKirtley tab, it explains all of those methods that I've just told you. And then also there is the facility to press record and leave me a voicemail using your phone, using your laptop, just record the question as an audio file. And then I get an email that says Ask Paul Kirtley in it with your, with your voice question. And again, that goes into my question bank. Okay, um, that's the way. Don't put, don't send me direct Facebook messages. Don't send me, uh, direct tweet messages. I, I cannot, the problem is that I won't find them at the time. Some of the questions don't get answered for months and I'm not gonna remember that you sent me a direct message 
on my Facebook po page in February. Um, I'm just too busy. Um, and again, that might sound a bit arrogant. Uh, you know, I'm trying to answer as many of these questions as possible. If you can't get the question to me in one of those four ways, email, tweet, hash, uh, Instagram, or a voicemail, I'm sorry, it's not gonna get answered. That's the way it has to get to me. Makes my life easy so I can actually then spend the time answering the questions, not trying to find them. And that's aimed at that idiot who gave me a hard time recently for being an arrogant limey, as he put it, for being specific about how people ask me questions. Fine, there's loads of other stuff on the internet. Go and have a look at that. Okay, so great example of an Instagram question here from Luke in Woodland. Nice picture of what he's asking the question about and good clear use of the hashtag AskPaulCurtly. I found it and I'm answering it. And it is from February, this question. Yep, um, but I found it because he's done what I've asked. So anyway, thank you, Luke. Um, his question is, hi, Paul. Recently, I made some tea with what I thought were okay to use pine needles. I've tried it before and had a very nice tasting tea. The tea from the needles in this picture was very unpleasant and made me think, was it actually toxic? <clears throat> My question is, can you ID these needles from the picture and is it toxic? Also, are there toxic pines out there? How best to learn uh, of them? Many thanks, Luke. Well, um, I can safely say that you've got a pine there, Luke, and that you haven't poisoned yourself. You'll be glad to know, um, even if it is a few months after you asked the question. So, all pines, with one exception, Pinus monophylla, which has single needles, monophylla. All the other pines have needles that emanate from the twig, the stem, in at least pairs. Think of it like hairs coming out of a hair follicle, um, and all of the pines have two at least coming out of each follicle. Some have three, some have five, some have seven, um, some have... Uh, other numbers but it is largely like this one here if you're watching the video uh, there's a couple of Scots pines just over there we had a windy night last night some bits have come off and these needles are arranged in a little bundle called a fascicle and they are in a a pair like so Yep, and if you're listening to it on the podcast, think of like a, a pair of chopsticks, if you like, bundled together at one end, like a pair of tongs, if you like. And many of the pines have two needles. So here, we native Eurasian species, Scots pine, Pinus sylvestris, two. Um, go across to North America, similar sort of ecological niche um, in some ways. Um, you've got uh, Pinus banksiana, jack pine, two needles. Um, and then you've got others as well across North America like uh, Pinus contorta, etc., etc. And they've all got at least two white pines, um, Weymouth pines, etc. more. Yeah, but they've all got at least two needles. The needles vary in length, but there are none of them apart from Pinus monophylla, which is, is not relevant really to this discussion. Um, where there's only one needle coming out. So if you find a species which you think is pine and it's got needles coming out in multiples out of the same fascicle, out of the same, in, the, in a bundle, a little bundle of, of um, two or more, then, then you've got the right thing. Um, of course, you've got the, the, the larches and the tamaracks where you've got a lot of, you've got a little bundle of needles of maybe about 25 or 30 needles coming out on a little, on a little peg 
we're not talking about those we're talking about um, we're talking about the pine so you need to be able to differentiate between those but you're not going to poison yourself with larches and tamaracks the larix um, but they look like the little splayed kids paintbrushes where they've been painting a little bit too vigorously on the paper and the ends become all splayed um, other than that your your spruces your firs your douglas firs your hemlock spruces if you like the western hemlock east, eastern hemlock the sugars the pseudo sugars the uh, piquiers the abs all of those single needles coming singly from the stem and importantly you taxus uh, genus they all have single needles as well so there are, most of the ones i've mentioned there are not toxic you is toxic but all of them have single needles so if you're making pine needle tea as long as it's got needles at least two in a pair or three or five together then you've got a pine and none of them are toxic and all of them are able to make pine needle tea now some of them do taste better than others and some of them are more resinous than others of course and some of them at different times of the year may be somewhat sharper more astringent um, than than others um, that's a matter of taste but in terms of toxicity you've got no issues there so hopefully that's helpful in terms of identifying them um, I do run a tree and plant ID course um, it's quite involved but if you are interested in lots of tree and plant ID that's a course to get onto. I only open it once a year and the next time it will be open is over the, the winter of 2017 into 2018 the course gets going in the beginning of the year there are 12 modules which take you through the year and there are live tutorials there's a Facebook group there's a community around it as well and it works very well we have people who go from zero to being very good with their ID for bushcraft and survival um, during that program and that's what it's for it's not a it's not a course for botanists as such it's a course for people who want a practical um, bushcraft and survival level of EID knowledge so that they know how, how to identify common widespread and useful plants and pines are, are definitely one of them and being able to positively identify your pines um, amongst others is is very very useful so if that's something of interest you can go to um, <clears throat> online bushcraft courses which is one of my sites that I use to deliver all of my online training um, and you can get more info on the uh, or at least register to get more info when it's available on the tree and plant ID masterclass um, there um, online bushcraftcourses.com which brings us on to the next question and this question is from Andrew and Andrew asks hello really enjoy your videos and blog they've helped to reignite my interest in bushcraft and outdoor skills my question is are there any ways to work on skills and or knowledge without being outdoors I know nothing is going to replace actually getting out into nature and I wouldn't want it to but I often find myself in a position where I have an hour or two to spare between work and other commitments which isn't enough time for me to get into the forest or similar but I wonder if there's anything I could use that time to practice or work on well that's a very good question and I'm sure that is a question that's relevant to many people Andrew so yes I would agree that time out in the woods is the most important thing time out efficiently applying things working on the right things in the woods of course because of course you can go out to the woods and faff around a lot you can just sort of waft around and not really achieve very much um, and that and I, and I don't mean that in the sense that you should always be achieving things when you're in the woods but what I mean is yes of course go out and enjoy nature and just go for a walk and what have you but if you want to go to the woods to practice you want to be practicing in some sort of structured meaningful way and that's that's important as well to get your skills up the curve and I would thoroughly encourage that and I would say that there isn't any 
uh, way to get around that um, in a lot of ways. But what you can do, I mentioned on, online, you know, a lot of you um, get a lot of value from my blog, um, articles, and then of course we've got videos, we've got podcasts. You can learn um, think, thinking, mindset, approach, um, technical knowledge uh, in terms of everything from knowing what the major contaminants that you might encounter in water are to knowing um, at least theoretically the uh, the protocols you've got for dealing with water purification um, you can start to learn tree and plant id although again you need to go out and even my online programs require you to go out and do some homework where you're in your local area looking at the trees and the plants that are in your local area so that you've actually got some practical application of what we're doing on the online course. So melding those two is, is, is good. One really underestimated thing that you can be doing, um, and a lot of people don't do these days, is reading. Yeah, just read a book. Read a book, um, the, the practical books, in terms of uh, you know, woodcraft and camping literature, uh, accounts of expeditions, particularly if they're historical and they're using traditional skills, um, books on anthropology, books on um, archaeobotany. There's loads of stuff around the subject which is going to infill, um, but get the basics right first because otherwise you might lose the context. But there's lots and lots of stuff you can listen to. You can listen to uh, read and then you can listen to podcasts, etc., as well. Um, so those those things you can do in you know you can pick have a book in your backpack um, in your day pack when you're to and from work or what have you and if you're on the bus or waiting um, or in between work and going to collect the kids or collecting the kids and uh, a, a, an evening club or whatever it is whatever your situation um, you can be reading you can be listening um, you can be watching these days although again we've talked about before there's there's some good stuff out there on the internet and there's some, it's like any subject, there's some good stuff and there's some tripe and you have to learn the difference between the two. But reading, certainly reading accounts of um, trips and expeditions and hardship and survival stories and all of those things feed into your outdoor mindset and I think they're, they're good. I think they're good to do. Um, what else can you do practically? Um, if you're interested in learning knots, which I suggest you should be because they have many, many applications, learning your basic knots, um, having a, a couple of pieces of string in your pocket and just practicing, you know, tying a bowline, tying a sheep bend, tying a, a sheep shank, tying a, um, you know, an alpine butterfly, tying a constrictor knot around your thumb, all, all of these things you could do, just having a bit, you can practice that on your own time, just have that in your pocket. Um, daily you can look at what's the sun doing, you know, where is it setting, uh, is there a new moon, is that coming up or just after sunset, you can be making observations that help you with your natural navigation knowledge, getting familiar with all of those sorts of things, um, carving, depends where you are of course, because you know, you have to have a cutting tool for carving, but if you're at home, um, rather than out in the woods, I have friends who carve at home and they just put a big sheet, they put an old bed sheet down on the, on the ground, on the kitchen floor or the um, living room floor and they'll carve. They'll carve spoons and butter knives and make bow drill sets and all sorts of things. You can do that at home. If you've got a bit of a backyard, you could do that at home as well in that sense, outdoors. Um, you can, if you're at home and you have some bow drill sets, you can practice your bow drilling, um, hand drilling. Um, all of those things can be done at home. You don't necessarily need to be in the woods. Um, you might need to source some of the materials when you're in the woods, um, but then you can have those things at home and practice, keep your hand in, particularly with things like hand drill. You know, if your hands aren't in good condition, um, both in terms of the toughness of your skin and just the, um, just the ability to press onto something hard, your hands get tender when you're first um, doing hand drill. Unless you keep them in condition, they'll go back to being like that every time. So there are some things which are worth keeping ticking over on a, on a fairly regular basis anyway. Um, lots and lots of things. Knowledge-based, of course, anything knowledge-based you can work on at home. Um, and then there's, there's plenty of practical stuff that you, can, that you can do if you've got a little bit of room. Um, a, lot of that, a lot of that stuff can be done at home. Even things like um, 
if you want to practice filleting fish, um, you can go to your fishmonger, and it's, this is often a way of saving money as well, um, rather than buying little salmon fillets um, from, from the local store, um, go to the fishmonger and buy a whole salmon. And then you can practice it, you can practice filleting it in a way that you could then cook over the campfire where you're outdoors, but then you can cut those fillets, uh, that fillet up. Some of it can go in the freezer, some of it can be for dinner, um, and you'll save yourself quite a few pounds or dollars, depending on where you are. I don't know where you are actually, Andrew. Um, wherever you are, you'll save some money doing that because you're doing the work of, of cutting up the fish and you're learning how to do it. Um, lots of cooking you could think about recipes that you might like to try in the woods and you can work on them at home so you're familiar with the ingredients you're familiar with preparation times and um, that can all be done at home so that when you get into the woods with your billy can or your your frying pan or your dutch oven or whatever it is that you can apply it well you're not having to worry about um, anything other than managing the heat that you need you you're familiar with the with the the method and the recipe all of that stuff can be done at home all of that, lots and lots and lots and lots. And the more you think about it, actually, the more there is. So hopefully that gives you a few good ideas. Um, and if you want any more specific advice on anything, always happy to, to try and help. This is from Vince, Vince Leroyd. Nice to hear from you, Vince. Came on a, on a one day course with us a little while ago, made a nice little video of that, actually. Um, uh, you'll find that somewhere on YouTube, I am sure. Um, Vince says, firstly, I just want to thank you for the invaluable knowledge you impart. It's very much appreciated. My question is regarding fire plow. I have seen this technique get a concise mention in survival books, but it seems to be overlooked in favor of bow drill. I realize bow drill is the best technique, but I'm thinking if giving the fire, thinking of giving the fire plow a go, could you give me some pros and cons regarding this technique? Is it practical in the Northern Hemisphere and what materials should I consider? Many thanks for your time. Regards, Vince. Um, good question. Good question. Um, okay, so a couple of things in terms of assumptions. Um, <clears throat> let's distinguish between the tropics and Northern temperate and boreal. Um, for starters, because obviously Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, you've got quite a wide range of uh, latitudes there, which are tropical. And it's, it's largely that area that the fire plow comes into its own, um, although it goes further south towards Australia and then into New Zealand. Um, it's a Polynesian technique. Um, it's, it's found everywhere from Hawaii to uh, New Zealand in terms of um, indigenous use and interestingly where it was used historically it doesn't seem that there was any other means of fire lighting um, so if you look at anthropological accounts of uh, First Nations in North America often they had multiple means that they they could use they could use bow drill or a version of um, they could use or they could use hand drill and or um, and some would also use, it seems, fire plow. And there would be overlap. It wouldn't just be one or the other. They'd have multiple means at their, exp at their disposal, just like we do. You know, I can do bow drill, hand drill, fire plow, fire saw. Um, some of them work better in different environments, but you've got those different techniques at your, at your uh, disposal. So the question then is, what's the most applicable appropriate technique for the environment and you're right bow drill here in the somewhat cold somewhat damp northern temperate works very well you've got a lot of mechanical advantage with bow drill we've talked about bow drill a lot before on previous Aspore Kirtley shows but um, you've got lots of mechanical advantage you've got the string you're rotating that um, spindle rapidly by using a bow um, and it's a powerful motion coming from the, coming from the shoulder and the arm. Um, it doesn't require much in the way of specific physical conditioning, as long as you've got some upper body strength. Unlike hand drill, for example, where you do need your hands in the right condition, otherwise you're gonna trash your hands. The rotational movement is powerful with bow drill. 
And the other thing is the downward pressure that requires that is required for friction um, is independent, is independently applied from the rotational movement. So you can vary those two things for, for whatever material you're using. Um, you can get that balance right and, and get the get the smoke flowing and the ember forming. And therefore there are a wide range of different materials you can use. Oh, excuse me. Um, there are a wide range. So you've got the widest range of materials of any in the Northern Temperate can be sourced to use with bow drill. As long as you've got a decent quality piece of cordage, piece of paracord or a piece of uh, rawhide and some rudimentary cutting tool, you can make a bow drill set and you can make fire and you can make fire pretty soon after you've sourced the materials. And that's one of the reasons we, we teach it as a elementary skill. On my elementary wilderness bushcraft course, that's the friction fire lighting skill that we teach because it is that foundational uh, technique and you can use it in many, many places inside Northern Temperate and Boreal and outside of that zone as well. So it's really important. Hand drill is harder to apply in this environment, partly due to material selection, partly due to the fact that you need to often process the material in order for it to be ready to use to make a fire. And the best way to, to do that uh, straight in a hand drill, for example, is that you've got some heat and therefore you need a fire in the first place. So it's a little bit further down the line. I teach that technique on my intermediate wilderness skills bushcraft. That's why it sits above like some of those other skills on that course because they require you to be established in the environment, to have some things in place. You're, you're getting a bit deeper into that natural economy. It's not things that you suddenly parachuted in and that you can apply immediately. You've got to be there for a little while. You've got to start collecting materials, preparing them, maybe waiting a few days for them to dry, etc., etc. That's what we do on the intermediate course. Fire plow. So fire plough, a couple of observations. One is it emanates in Polynesia. So it, culturally, that's where it belongs. But also you have to understand the nature of the materials. Now that's a wide geographic region from Hawaii down to uh, the Maori in New Zealand, up through, um, up through the Pacific. There's a, there's a big area there. Northern Australia as well. It was known to have been used. So what type of woods have you got available to you and what is the, what is the uh, nature of the environment that you're in? Is it cold and damp or is it relatively warm, etc.? Um, hibiscus is one of the best materials um, to be used and that clearly has a certain geographic range. And so um, that is part of it. So there's a cultural carrying of the technique with the Polynesians and then there's also availability of suitable materials and that's part of the issue so by all means if you're and I know you're working on your bow drill Vince um, as you develop your bow drill skills and you apply the bow drill with different materials here in the northern temperate the ones that work well for friction think about maybe applying those for uh, for fire plow um, some of them work better than others. It, it's hard to find materials here, native ones in particular in Northern Europe that work well for the fire plow. Um, the hardness of the plow is important. The shape of the end of the plow is important. So look at some good diagrams of, um, or even photographs of fire plows that work and try and replicate the end of the plow. That shape's very important. And then in terms of materials, um, you can play around with things like clematis as, as the baseboard. You can play around with things like ivy. You can play around with um, willow as long as it's not too hard. Yeah, I would say play around with those first. Um, <clears throat> not necessarily for the for the top part but for the bottom part and then you can also if you can get hold of western red cedar or eastern white cedar 
North American species, uh, Thuja genus, um, have a play with those as well as the baseboard. Um, they're, they're nice for friction firelighting. The other native ones to have a play with, of course, are the limes. Um, they're good friction firelighting woods. Um, and see where you get to with those. But I will warn you that it's hard. Um, it requires a lot of strength here, clasping the hand there and pushing. And there's core strength coming from here as, you, as you're moving forwards and holding your body rigid. And then there is arm strength as well. You can see why those Polynesian guys, as well as all the paddling, um, you can see why the Maoris and the Fijians and the um, Hawaiian guys have got big arms. Um, it's all that fire plowing because um, you need you need the arm strength but hopefully that helps Vince um, that isn't the easiest route of friction firelighting to uh, go down in terms of self-study in the UK but it, it's an interesting and rewarding one should you want to go down that route question from Brian Legat or Legat I always like to call him Legat. Sounds more, I don't know, sounds more ex exploratory. Question is, just reading it again here, it's sort of quite spread out on the page, the formatting. Fitness for wilderness expeditions. Brian's question is, um, it was a pleasure finally meeting you in person at the Bushcraft Show. My question relates to the fitness levels required to undertake wilderness expeditions such as your blood vein or Tanzania trips. I will be 50 in a couple of years time and would love to mark the occasion by undertaking an adventure of this nature. Being frank, I'm overweight and unfit having spent the best part of 15 years of my working life in an office. Trips like these are a significant financial investment and I would hate to feel that I'm ruining it for other people by holding them back and potentially not being able to keep up. Thank you in advance for your thoughts, Brian. Uh, that's quite sweet, Brian, um, in terms of your consideration for others. And also clearly you want to not be exhausted during any uh, trip. You want to be able to enjoy it and make the most of it. Um, both in terms of uh, it not being an ordeal and not being so tired that you can't spend the evenings looking at the northern lights or the stars uh, unencumbered by uh, light pollution or watching um, wildlife or, or whatever it is. You want to be able to take everything in um, and not just be sort of chin hanging by your chin strap as it were. Um, so I completely understand that and yes you do need to have some level of fitness uh, for undertaking trips. Um, with Tanzania, it's, it's a, the, the physical side is largely walking, a walking safari, walking around with a Hadza, that type of thing. Um, sometimes it can be quite hot, so, and that's draining, so just, just some walking fitness, I would say. Just going out and walking, particularly in the summer, um, that's gonna be as good as anything. Just with a day pack, going out and walking on a regular basis. Just having that basic leg strength, cardiovascular fitness, being on your feet for a good part of the day. And actually, to be honest with you, Brian, I see that with people who come on courses with me who are um, mainly uh, sedentary, who work in an office, um, just being on your feet outdoors all day. We're not covering huge distances. We're just out and about. We're looking at trees. We're collecting materials. We're building a shelter, which is somewhat physical. Um, building a shelter, lighting fires, cooking outdoors. <coughs> no, no sort of comfy chairs, as it were. You know, you're standing, you're sitting on stumps, you're crouching, you're kneeling up and down, moving around. It's tiring for people if they're not used to it. Um, so there's, there's that, just, just being on your feet. So I would say going out, walk, doing a bit of walking, that's gonna give you a good baseline for many things. In terms of what we do in Canada, uh, canoeing, you do need to have some canoeing experience um, for the Canadian trips. Um, you can get that. Uh, we have some UK-based programs which help you get to that point. So we have the Expedition Canoeing Skills course, which is a flat water based 
course which is designed to give you all the skills you need for doing a trip in the UK on flat water, going to somewhere like Sweden to do a trip on flat water. So by flat water we mean lakes and getting between lakes, portaging, etc, etc. Um, and all the campcraft skills to go with that, or going to somewhere like Algonquin in, in North America. That, it's that kind of style of trip. And then we do a trip on the River Spey, which dovetails with our um, expedition canoeing skills course. So there's a, a flat water consolidation phase, bit of moving water um, at the beginning, and then we head off down the Spey. And the, the nature of the Spey is that it gets bigger and bumpier as you go down. So you've got a learning phase as you go down. So people who have done, say, our blood vein trip, who have prior to maybe two years, um, two years prior to that, have never done any paddling before, have come to do the Expedition Canoeing Skills course, a spay trip, and then they've come and done a blood vein trip. And the blood vein is a proper wilderness river. It's 14 days, 13 nights, say, on the river, flying with float planes, with all the equipment, all the food that we need, self-sufficient, self-sustained for two weeks, traveling down a wilderness river. Um, it's a pool drop river, so some of it's flat, some of it's got rapids, but it's flat, rapids, flat, rapids, um, as is the nature of Canadian Shield rivers. And um, it's a great, great trip, and it is somewhat tiring. Um, there is that sort of core strength, torso, ro torso rotation, with your body, um, which comes from here. But if you've got to the point where you're able to come on that trip in terms of paddling um, experience, whether you do it with us, or whether you say get up to two to three stars uh, UK uh, British canoeing uh, standard elsewhere, um, you know what that means in terms of paddling. Um, your body knows what it means um, and you're kind of naturally there. And then, of course, there is the portage element of canoe trips, and that's just walking in the woods with a pack on or walking in the woods with a boat on your head. And um, again, walking, um, doing some regular walking um, up and down some hills, maybe with a backpack, with a little day pack on, um, nice rolling countryside. If you go out um, on a regular basis on a weekend, if you spend a, a day or even a half a day, every other weekend or every weekend in the six months prior to a trip like that going walking you'll be more than fit enough because um, again you're going to be on your feet or in the boat most of the day unless you're sleeping um, and you've got the canoeing skills you've got the walking uh, fitness you've got the ability to carry a little bit of um, weight through the portage none of the portages on the blood vein are particularly long i think the longest one is about 370 meters um, <clears throat> but it's 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 just that you're not sitting all day um, you're not sitting doing nothing all day, you're sitting or kneeling paddling or you're walking through the portage trails or you're on the, the camp spot and you're going out getting firewood, setting up camp, etc, etc. Um, and, then, and then you're enjoying the, enjoying the, uh, the surroundings otherwise. So um, yeah, I think it's well within your capabilities to do any of those trips. I mean, none of our trips are made to be you know, ordeals, non, they're meant to be accessible as much as we can make them um, in terms of prerequisites. And they are meant to be enjoyable and they're meant to, we, our job really, what, what my job is generally, is to enable people to go out into nature, to go out into wild places and to do the things that they want. And um, that's, that's kind of, I don't have a mission statement, but if you wanted to, I think it, it would be that. Um, in terms of sharing information and knowledge with people online, like I am doing now, podcasts, videos, etc., um, sharing information on my blog, writing magazine articles, contributing to people's books, um, which I've done a number of, and also then teaching courses, teaching skills, and leading trips. All of those are aimed at helping people get to where they want to, both figuratively and physically um, that's what I do so none of what we do is aimed to put barricades or barriers in your way and if you're concerned about fitness you shouldn't be all you need to do is have a plan you're thinking about it a long way in advance which is good and this goes for doing something with me or doing something with anybody else if you want to do an adventurous journey some adventure travel a wilderness trip is think about it well in advance think about 
saving up, putting money aside. And while you're doing that, think about getting your basic fitness levels up. And that doesn't mean going to the gym and doing weights and going to CrossFit or anything like that. It just means getting out on your feet because that is, that's, you know, if you're sedentary, that's the main thing. Yeah, if you go out walking every weekend or do short walks two or three times a week, um, preferably with a bit of a day pack on with a bit of weight in it, so you're used to having a few things on your shoulders, um, that will be more than adequate to get you up the curve. And you can ramp up, you know, do some slightly longer walks, perhaps closer to the, to the trip, and you'll find it combined, if we're talking about the canoeing, with doing the canoeing training that you need to do, you'll find it no issue at all. And I know that because we've had plenty of people come and do that with us before, Brian, and you're not outside the age bracket that um, we get on those trips by any means. Um, your lifestyle is not uncommon and um, that's that's what we do so um, it's it's fairly straightforward for you to get on any of those trips in terms of getting yourself up to up to speed so hopefully that's useful but if you've got more specific questions you know where i am you're on my um, online courses we have fairly regular contact you know where i am on facebook you know where i am on email so you can ask if you've got more specific questions than that please please do just ask Wild Tees, this is from Duncan, who also met me at the Bushcraft Show. Good to hear from you, Duncan. Wanted to ask you a question. Would you say that the, what would you say, ask this, sorry, there's, there's too many words in there. What would you say are some easily identifiable plants that I can make a tea out of in the woods? I love nettle tea, but what others would you, would be good to try. Um, well, nettle's good, of course, um, and that's quite a particular taste, but other things you could try that are easily identifiable. Wood sorrel, Oxalis acetacella, um, quite a tart, lemony, apple peely flavor in the leaf. Some of that steeped in hot water adds a nice flavor to it. Um, ground ivy, Glaucoma hedrosea in the mint family, very slightly medicinal taste. Um, on its own, lots of it isn't always to everyone's taste, although it's very good. I should have some now. I've, I've had this sort of catar for a while. I had a head cold a little while ago, which is not usual for me, certainly not in the summer. Last time I was ill in the summer was 1995. Um, it's good for um, bronchial complaints and clearing your your nostrils. So you know, good amount of ground ivy in hot water. It's good just to breathe the vapors, but drinking as well is good for uh, sore throats, bronchial chest complaints, head colds, etc. But as a day-to-day -day tea, it's better mixed with a few nettles for for for, for sort of blending the flavour. And um, the other thing that you could add into it is some wild mint as well. And there are a number of wild mints uh, you could use. Um, they're nice on their own as well, of course. So water mint is a common mint that you will find, a mint of damp places. Um, I've mentioned that a number of times on my blog. If you have a look at my blog at paulcutley.co.uk, uh, Wild Wanderings 8, I talked about wild uh, mint on there, water mint specifically, and there's also another article on my blog about using water mint for teas as well. So that's a good one. I'll put a link in the show notes for those. Um, corn mint as well looks very similar to water mint. Um, and you often, they do hybridize a bit as well. So none of the wild mints in the UK are going to cause you any issues. So if, it's, if, if it looks like mint and it smells like mint, you can make a mint tea with it. Um, so that's a good one. Do, 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 do. Pine needles, we've talked about pine needles already. You know how, if you've listened to this whole episode, you know how to identify or at least have a, a, a good idea of what you're going to be looking for. Cross-reference with an ID guide perhaps, but any of the pines, you can make a pine needle tea, rich in vitamin C, has generally a good flavor uh, to it. <clears throat> that's another good one. Meadow sweet is another one. Uh, Philippendula ulmaria. Um, I find it a very easy leaf to identify, but some people confuse it with other things. So 
from that perspective, I would say just be a little bit careful with that. But meadow sweet, the leaves, again, it's got quite a specific taste to it. It's a little bit medicinal, but it does make quite a nice tea. If you've got a headache, it's got some natural aspirin in it as well. Um, so it's quite soothing if you're a bit sore uh, or you've got a headache. Um, those, those would be the like, kind of top ones. And then you can start using things like bramble leaves in the spring. Um, that type of thing going to give you a bit of a fruity flavor and then you can start making cordials and all sorts of things with fruit but in terms of leaf teas uh, green leaf teas that are common widespread easily <coughs> excuse me easily identified those are the ones that i go for <coughs> excuse me <coughs> learning to navigate at night short and sweet really nice example of a twitter question using the hashtag ask paul curtly and this is from wild brigante and his question is what's the best way to learn navigation at night thanks luciano well luciano i think your question is what's the best way to learn to navigate at night as opposed to learning all navigation during the night. I, th I think that's what you mean. So I, 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 I'm going to take it as what's the best way to learn how to navigate in the dark. Um, <clears throat> the way I teach people to navigate at night is um, giving them certain, giving them some basic navigation during daylight so they're understanding the principles of things like bearings being able to take a bearing from a map and apply it walk on that bearing walking on a bearing when they don't have a visual frame of reference um, and there are ways of doing that even during daylight so um, being out in an open field and just walking by keeping your bearing correct with your compass without looking at what's around you, counting a number of paces and then changing the angle by a number of degrees and then walking out a, a route and getting back to where you started um, and being accurate with getting back to where you started without cheating. Um, that's a good way of practicing just walking on bearings and clearly the risk is low there because if you get it wrong, you're in an open field you're not going to fall off anything and into anything. Um, you're not going to get lost. And so you can train yourself to do that in a low risk environment, which is good. Um, then you can come to the woods during day light hours and start walk, learning how to walk on a bearing in the woods. Um, because of course you can't walk in a straight line in the woods. And I don't mean that you're going to walk in circles when you don't have a compass. I'm talking with your compass. Clearly there are trees and other obstacles in the way and so you have to then have some techniques for getting around the obstacles but keeping on your, on your bearing. So whether it's sighting a tree and then walk, that's on your bearing, walking to that, going around the other side of it, um, sighting the next thing, double checking with a back bearing that you're on the right line to your, the one that you've just walked from, having boxing around techniques, all of those things are important. So you, but you can practice all of those things during the daylight, learning how to pace um, and time your legs. And I don't mean your legs, I mean the legs that you're wa walking along. So you working out, this is going to take me uh, six minutes to walk and I'm expecting, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I know I walk so many paces per 100 meters, etc., etc., and working out how many paces it's going to take, keeping track of your distance using paces, pacing and timing for dead reckoning, if you like, are important at night. But those are things that you can practice during the day. Um, and then things like if you're on, a, on a, a track, a trail in the woods that's on your map, you can take bearings down the trail to make sure you're on the right bearing. When you come to junctions in the trail, you can take bearings, even if you can't see very far down them, you can take bearings, double check that you're, you're choosing the right one. Um, they're all good nighttime techniques. So there's a lot that you can practice during the day. And then the more you get into the woods, the, the, f the less distance you can actually see. If you're out in the open, you can see 
landmarks in the distance, it's easy to orient the map, you hardly need to use a compass, but once you get into the woods in dense woodland, you need to, it's more like walking at night. <coughs> so that's a good intermediate stage. And then you need some techniques for actually practically applying, walking on bearings, pacing, timing, etc., in the woods. And then you can then start maybe moving around a relatively straightforward um, environment um, unencumbered by too many obstacles at night try and do it without head torches on a night where there's a good moon um, or have um, a method where you can look at your map without losing your night vision so maybe keeping one eye open one eye closed or using um, a non-white light that's going to not affect your night vision as much so that you can look at your map and your compass and then turn your light off and, and walk. Do that in a relatively unrisky uh, un environment, both in terms of consequences of you making mistakes with your techniques, in terms of just wasting your time, and also obviously um, practical uh, you know, danger of falling off and over things and um, getting yourself into, into dangerous situations. Um, and then maybe come to the woods in the dark and then you can really start to to um, move around in any environment in in darkness but it does take some time it takes some practice focus on the basics walking on bearings understanding the relationship between magnetic north geographic north and and grid north understanding how to take bearings from your map for where you are so that you can walk on them, practice walking on bearings accurately in unrisky environments, practice pacing, practice timing, practice putting those together in the daylight, then start putting them together um, at night in a field, say for example, and then you can start applying them in harder environments in the dark. That's the approach that I would, that I would take. Last question. from Thomas in the Czech Republic. And he asks, what is your opinion on Paramo clothing? If you have some experiences, please share. Um, I like Paramo clothing. Um, I think it's good. Um, they're based not far from here, actually. I have no connection with the company, um, <clears throat> but uh, Nick Wax and, and Paramo are not far from here in this part of the UK. And I like the Nikwax products um, for reproofing uh, my gear, um, particularly the, um, the Tech Wash for cleaning it and the um, TX Direct for uh, reproofing breathable uh, stuff. I use that on clothes and I use it on uh, with, with breathable membranes like Gore-Tex jackets and Event and Paramo, etc. And I also use it on um, bivy bags as well. It works very well on those breathable bivy bags. In terms of the Paramo clothing, I like, um, I have a, a smock which is unlined, it's just a windproof shell, and I really like that. It's a little bit um, heavier than some windproofs, um, and I don't mean ventile and that type, I mean like proper lightweight windproofs that are just gossamer thin and go over. It's a little bit heavier, it's got a little bit more in terms of features, in terms of um, uh, cuff velcro and zips and pocket and it's it's a nice it's like a the paramo outer the analogy outer material it's like a paramo version of a ventile smock that i'd wear in the woods and i like it a lot i wear it quite a lot for walking i wear it quite a lot for um <clears throat> for hill walking when it's not teeming with rain but it's windy it's very breathable <clears throat> keeps the wind off, it's comfortable to wear, packs down to nothing. I also take it on uh, winter trips with me because again it packs down to nothing and it's brilliant for digging out snow shelters and in fact I did something, just, just remembered actually, I did something on my blog about clothing for digging out, I can't remember what the title was, whether it was digging out Quinsies or digging out snow shelters, whether it was that specific to Quinsies, but basically that Paramo smock is an oversmock that I, I wear on that type of activity. I've used it in Norway for digging out snow shelters in the mountains. I've used it in northern Sweden for digging out Quinsies. Um, it's great because it stops your other stuff getting wet and it's not your main smock. 
um, either, which is going to get wet. So you can take off your big, heavy um, ventile smock, for example, in the northern forest with a fur ruff and all of that. And you can put this little smock on, which keep seal it all up, keep the snow out, keep the snow and moisture off your uh, base layer. And then it packs away, it dries out very quickly and packs away to nothing. So I really like that. And then the lined stuff as well is good, whether they're the smocks, and or the jackets they work very very well and i have friends in mountain rescue who you know many many mountain rescue people wear paramo um, here in the uk where they're going to get cold and they're going to get wet unless they've got the right clothing and even if they do get a bit wet the paramo stuff seems to keep them dry keep them keep them <clears throat> in the right condition when they're moving in the right condition when they're stationary looking after a casualty um, lots of people who are in arduous conditions in the outdoors in the UK in particular really rate it um, for for those things. Also it works nicely under ventile in the same way that buffalo tops work well under a ventile top. The lined paramo smocks if you use that as your warm uh, layers if you like um, the analogy material the, the thin material it's like pertex none of these synthetic outer materials are good um, in heavy briars where you've got thorns um, abrasive materials against them or fire is the main issue with all of those synthetics um, if you get a spit from the fire onto them straight through if you put a ventile smock over the top it protects the uh, the finer material on the inside and then the other thing you know everybody uh, should know this about ventile it isn't the most waterproof fabric in the world people say it's a it's a Gore-Tex equivalent no it's not um, I've worn I like ventile a lot I've got a double la layered ventile smock that I had custom made for me um, Ian and I had one made um, a few years ago for our winter trips that we do in northern Sweden and we love those smocks they're absolutely fantastic um, the lighter weight smocks that Snow Sled used to make, that Hilltrek still do make, those type of jackets, they're fine for the woods, they're good and they're breathable and they protect your inner clothing. But when it really lashes it down, they don't keep the water out. Um, I've worn single layer ventile smocks in the hills in Scotland and really regretted it. Um, let's not sell people this romantic idea that um, that stuff is as good as a modern triple layer Gore-Tex XCR um, Pro Shell or Event or what have you jacket in the in the mountain in Scotland in March and it's raining and it's cold no it's not in the woods fantastic but even so chucking down with rain the water's going to come through on the shoulders of a single layer Gore-Tex of a single layer ventile jacket um, fairly quickly combined with something like a Buffalo Systems Special 6 shirt or a Paramo, I don't know the, the model name, but a Paramo smock of a similar weight underneath. Fantastic combination. Ventile and Paramo go really well together. Um, and some of the other synthetic based systems with a Ventile shell over the top work really well together in the woods. So if you've got that type of system, you can wear them without the Ventile in the mountains and with the ventile in the woods and it gives you a good flexible system and the jackets themselves um, the paramo stuff is very good um, and I, I don't, i'd recommend it <clears throat> that brings us to the end i believe brings us to the end of ask paul kirtley 57. so thanks for your questions again all good questions range of different topics that it takes us down there um, all of these questions uh, help bring a conversation to the fore, different things to the fore. It helps draw stuff out of me that I wouldn't necessarily think to talk about, certainly not at that moment. It um, draws things out of me, different perspectives that, that are based on my experience, but maybe I wouldn't choose to write an article about or make a, a tips and tricks video about or what have you. So that's really useful for me to get that information out to you. Thank you for the questions. Thanks to all of you for your attention. Everyone who's listening via the podcast, everyone who is watching via the videos, whether it's on my blog or on YouTube, much, much appreciated for your attention. And might I ask, as always, if you are 
watching please leave a comment below wherever you're watching the video please leave a comment please like the video if you're able to just clicking like and on youtube leaving a comment helps uh, or leaving a comment on my blog is always appreciated i do read every one and also if you are on podcast land in podcast land please leave a rating in the appropriate place on the platform that you're on even if it's just giving it a star rating leaving a comment is great but just saying you like it if you do of course is very very helpful it helps put it out in front of more people um, which helps me uh, frankly um, it helps me because <clears throat> the more people that see this the more I can justify spending the time doing it and of course, the more people who watch, the more good questions we get and then everyone benefits. So thanks again for your questions. Thanks for your attention. And I will see you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley before too long. Take care. Cheers.